Welcome everyone to Greencast. This is a podcast that brings practicality to being sustainable. Presented to you by the Waukesha County Green Team. Your hosts are myself, Alec Lapoitevin. And me, Laura Lauks. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Greencast. We have another episode about sustainability in your home this week. I sit down with Tim O'Brien of Tim O'Brien Homes and we talk about the actual construction process in sustainable building and making sure that during the design and construction of a home, it can be the most sustainable it can be. Um, There's also a couple of tips towards the end about existing home sustainability and how to improve that. So stick around to the end and I really hope you enjoy this super informative episode and learn a little bit more about home building. I also want to mention that Tim O'Brien Homes is a sponsor of our sustainability fair in August. So the Waukesha County Green Team is putting on a sustainability fair at Retzer Nature Center in Waukesha on August 28th from 9.30 to 3. And so if you're in the area, please check it out. Um, We're really thankful to Tim O'Brien Homes for sponsoring this year. And in the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear a couple more episodes specifically about the sustainability fair and a couple of exhibitors that we have there and learning a little bit more about the things that we have going on. So thanks again for Tim O'Brien for sponsoring. Tim O'Brien founded Tim O'Brien Homes along with his partner, Matt Newman, in June of 2007. Since the inception of Tim O'Brien Homes, the company has been honored to receive the Silver NHQ Award in 2016 and the Gold Award in 2017. At the start of 2018, the company had also broken ground in Wisconsin's first net-zero energy neighborhood, Red Fox Crossing in New Berlin, and is the leading innovator of solar energy homes in the state of Wisconsin, partnering with Sunvest Solar Incorporated. Tim has been an active member of the local and state builders association, serving on the Single Family Builders Council, the Habitat for Humanity Home Builders Blitz, and chairman of the Green Building Council. He is a past president of the Metropolitan Builders Association, currently is a board member on the Wisconsin Builders Foundation, the education and philanthropic nonprofit that supports the State Builders Association, and a board member of the Waukesha County Housing Coalition. He is also an active National Association of Home Builders board member and a member on the Waukesha County Technical College Skilled Trades Advisory Committee. He serves as a board member for the EEBA. Tim is very active in several Waukesha area school districts, running a home building project with the high school construction trades program at Oconomowoc High School for the past 10 years, as well as pioneering a brand new curriculum for New Berlin Eisenhower High School's trade program, as well as Franklin High School. I also want to apologize for the poor sound quality on my part. Uh, We were recording in a different medium, so I know I sound pretty tinny on my side, but Tim sounds amazing, and that's really all that matters for this episode. So bear with us for this one. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Greencast again. We've got a really cool episode for you coming up. We're going to talk to Tim O'Brien of Tim O'Brien Homes. We're going to get more into the home efficiency side of sustainability. So welcome, Tim. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. So let's let's dive right in. I want to know more about what inspired you to get into the home building business and kind of a little bit more about your background. 
Yeah. So, uh, well, actually, I've always had an interest in, in home building all the way back to when I was really young and, and uh, took courses in junior high school and high school on drafting and, and architecture. And I've just always really been fascinated with residential architecture is kind of really where it started. And uh, I did, you know, speeches uh, in, in high school. We have to do the speeches. I did Frank Lloyd Wright uh, in, his, in his work and, you know, any stories that I had to write, they kind of centered around, you know, projects he did. And, you know, so I always kind of enjoyed that. And then um, as I got into high school and college, I was geared more towards commercial construction. And because I, I, I don't know, I just didn't see a, for me at that time and where I grew up, which is uh, in the Fox Cities, you know, a lot of the home builders up there were small, what I call pickup truck driver builders. And I, and I didn't really see myself fitting in that until I met, you know, this one person uh, in my college uh, career that kind of opened my mind up to home building is really a big industry. And, and, and there's bigger uh, companies, professional companies on the st U.S. stock exchange, actually, that are that are home builders. And so once I got a, a view, a perspective of, of kind of how big uh, this industry could be across the United States. I, I pushed more into into that area in, of interest in my career. And, and when I graduated college, I went to go work for one of the largest uh, home builders in the country. And I learned uh, through that group, um, I learned a lot about building science and customer satisfaction. And those were the two things that I took from from that builder. And then um, that builder left, the, it was in the Milwaukee market here. They decided uh, that they didn't, weren't gonna stay in the Milwaukee market anymore. And, and I wanted to still be here with my wife, my family. And, and so I went to go work for another builder that really taught me about the operational discipline of running a company. So I was able to take those three traits, the building science, customer satisfaction, the operational discipline into starting Tim O'Brien Homes in 2007 with my partner, Matt Newman. And since then, uh, when we started, uh, Matt and I both made a commitment that we believed that housing uh, can be, you can deliver a value-based, energy-efficient, certified by a third party, energy-efficient green home to the masses without having it to be a, a niche product is what it kind of was at that time. So we developed a value-based uh, strategy around delivering homes that provided that third-party certification, but also, of course, energy-efficient, comfortable, right? Uh, you have to have a comfortable home when you're building a tight home and then really focus on that indoor air quality and provide the peace of mind that the consumers at that time, we believe were looking for in terms of control over their utility bills and and, and as, as well as providing a, a more maintenance-free, nothing's ever maintenance-free, but less maintenance. Uh, so you're not so you're not chained to your home on the weekend doing projects and really can go out and enjoy yourself. So that's kind of the mission that we uh, decided to do at that point in time. And we've never looked back. It's been a, it's been a great journey and, and we continue. There's still a lot of great things ahead for this industry and for our organization to continue to push uh, the envelope towards net zero homes. And that's part of our strategy going into the next three to five years. Ooh, net zero homes. That's interesting. Okay, I want to ask you about that later. But um, sustainability has, it sounds like it's always kind of been on the, the forefront, if not the back burner of your organization, um, in terms of the energy efficiency of homes, you've always kind of focused on the energy efficiency side. Yep, from day one, we made that commitment and every home that we've built has had that third party certification, again, both on energy efficiency and a green certified home. 
wow, what is that uh, that certification? What's the third party certification? So, so when we started uh, the energy efficiency, we were participating with Energy Star, and that's kind of the state was the state sponsored program. So on the energy efficiency side, we started with Energy Star, and then the state switched over to their own program called Focus on Energy, and so we moved to Focus on Energy, which they have a a, a strong prescriptive. Uh, path that you must take, pr prescriptive and performance path that you must take as a builder. And and we committed to that. Uh, th that change was probably about eight, nine years ago. And so we've been a focus on energy builder since then. And, um, and then the green certified uh, home program comes from the Wisconsin Environmental Initiative called Green Built Homes, which was a program that was uh, developed uh, in Madison in the, in the 1990s and uh, has had tremendous success here in the Southeast Wisconsin and Madison and other parts of the state as being uh, an accredited uh, green certification. So there's a, there's a complete checklist that our uh, energy rater actually, he fills out the form and the checklist to make sure that we meet uh, the requirements of that program. And so we provide uh, third-party certifications through the Focus on Energy program for energy efficiency and a third-party certification through the Wisconsin Environmental Initiative called Green Built Home Program. Wow, that's really fascinating. I didn't know that there were certification for residential buildings. Because in my day job, I actually work in the built environment. And so I'm doing the LEED certification for commercial buildings and the bigger ones. So I'm working with like LEED and WELL and things like that. But I didn't know that there, there was a couple for residential. That's really cool. And LEED is available for residential as well. Um, but what we found is the the LEED program is, is um, it, it, it has a lot of moving parts to it. And we wanted something that provided the third-party accreditation that was easy for people to understand, didn't require their participation post-occupancy, and was also provided that value-based uh, uh, program. So, so again, doesn't uh, increase the cost of the home to really go through that certification. There's a cost to do it. Um, and we believe in, in the testing. That's the other thing that I really enjoy about the program is that we don't have to test actually every home to certify each home. So we could do a random mm -hmm. sampling. We made a commitment that we're going to test every home. My, my background is in civil engineering. I'm a science-based person when I approach anything I do, and I want that data. And it's been amazing what we've been able to recover from testing every home. There's things that we find uh, in, in each home that are unique to that home that we can address before the occupant gets in and before the homeowner gets in it, where if we did just did random sampling, um, yes, we may pass and we may show that we can, we can in our process, we can be quote unquote, consistent in how we deliver home, but every home is unique. And we find uh, little things that uh, through our testing that we can make any adjustment or correction, whether it's comfort, air sealing, or other things that we can do to make sure that the home is just right for our consumers. We're committed to testing each and every home. And again, since we started in 2007, not a single home has gone by without going through that uh, rigorous testing uh, at the tail end of the construction. That's really fascinating to hear about all the things that you are doing differently than, you know, traditional residential home builders. So what have you seen the market for this? Who is attracted to this type of building? Well, what we've what we've found is that we we position it in our marketplace that we have to deliver the value because what we found early on when we 
offered energy package upgrades, people uh, gravitated more towards, again, like countertops and, and wood floor and other finishes. And they thought, you know, that they made the assumption that, well, if it, this is built to code, it should be energy efficient. And, and that assumption is not entirely correct. There's another level of energy efficiency that one can do. We don't build to the energy code. We build above energy code about 20 to 30. And in some cases, we're up to 40% above energy code in the homes that we build, depending on options that the customer takes, the layout of the wow. home and things like that. So, so we have to focus on what is the best value that we can deliver for the customer because it's, you know, if, if you compare our home to a traditional uh, code built, energy code built home, yes, we, we are, we do have greater level of cost in the home. But when we look at that cost, we want to say if we put this additional energy uh, component into the home, we want to make sure that it returns an investment for our homeowners in ideally less than three years, but no more than five to seven. And we can demonstrate that through energy modeling with our energy rater, we can demonstrate what that return on investment would be. So we're really focused on making sure that strategically any of the energy efficient upgrades that we do that are above energy code provide a payback to the customer in one form, form or another, but mostly looking at the economic side because primarily what we find in the markets that we serve, I call them kind of an economic green buyer. They're, they want a green home. They want an energy efficient home as long as it provides some kind of economic return. First, an economic return to them and we can demonstrate that. And then second, uh, things that are harder to quantify is comfort and peace of mind. But it really starts first with the economic discussion. And once we get through the economic discussion, they make decisions on how much they value comfort, how much they value peace of mind. And really, when we've used that strategy and we've, we've, we've dialed it in over the years and we feel we've got it really dialed in right now, the consumer understands it. They respond to it and, and they, they, they put their, they put their investment into the home. We talk about the total cost of home ownership. Um, and total cost of home ownership is not only what it costs you to to build the home, to buy the home, but what does it cost you to maintain the home? What does it cost for the utility bills? What does it cost a, on the life cycle of the home for you as an occupant to have that investment? So I think the important conversation is really total cost of home ownership, not just what it costs up front to build it, but what does it cost to maintain it? And what are the utility expenses? Because we can show you that you could save 30, even 40% on your utility bills over a traditional code built home. And that's pretty significant, especially we don't see energy costs slowing down. I mean, actually, they're going to continue to go up and probably go up more than the, the consumer pricing index uh, as utilities uh, require uh, more upgrades, um, additional capital investments that, that all cost money. And to deliver that energy is going to continue to cost more money. So if we can reduce the consumption in the home and we can build a tighter envelope in the home, we can reduce the utilities needed to service that home and to provide a comfortable environment for our for our buyers. That is such a great point. And that's kind of the whole idea of sustainability, right? Is to not, you don't look at the one piece. You got to look at the whole life cycle of the thing that you're using and make sure that it's going to continue to be efficient the whole time. So it's not just looking at, you know, the built house, but if you can design that in a way 
on the front end to be more efficient the whole life cycle. That's just gonna, you know, make the entire thing better versus trying to retrofit something to be more efficient later. It's so much more cost effective to do it in the design phase. Very true. Yep. Yeah. And I also love your point on the the cost effectiveness of this because I think a lot of people, business people in particular, forget that, you know, to a great extent, sustainability is about saving money. It's about the resources that you're using and trying to use less resources. And so if you lose, if you use less resources, you're not spending money on the resources. <laughs> and so the energy efficiency stuff, it's all about saving your money and you can be saving a lot of money for this. And so I know there's a lot of people who don't even care about sustainability and they just do it. So they have, you know, like you said, the 40 to 50% reduction in utility costs, which is huge. It can be significant. And again, it'll continue to be more significant uh, as time goes on. Yeah, that's really cool. So that's kind of standard with what you're doing, but can homeowners request any other certain efficiencies like maybe solar ready or geothermal ready or radiant heat or anything else? Yeah, so we we actually, uh, there's a couple different things uh, to answer that question. So we have a, a in our group of companies that we have, uh, that Tim O'Brien Homes is a part of, we have a solar company called SunVest. And so what we can do is we can, we can make, we participate in a program with the Department of Energy called the Zero Energy Ready Home. And there's a couple different pieces that you can do here. We can go full in on the Zero Energy Ready Home and get it all set up for you in terms of your ability to add solar later. Or we can just get your home solar ready. And that's a, that's a, there's two pieces that kind of go with that. One is a, a conduit. It's pretty simple. A conduit that goes directly straight up from the basement to the attic because sometimes the harder part of retrofitting a home for solar is how do you get the electric down into the basement and it has to be in a conduit. So mm -hmm. we can put that conduit in, we can rough that in for you. We can also focus on making sure that you have the right solar orientation, roof planes and roof pitch uh, for your home. So we can set up a home for future solar and again, make it solar ready. On the geothermal side, that's a little bit a different type of commitment um, because the geothermal has equipment inside the house. So if you're going to buy a, a, a traditional home with a gas furnace, you're, it's probably best to run the life cycle of that gas furnace or close to the life cycle of that gas furnace before you switch to geothermal because it is completely different equipment. Where, where solar is a nice kind of bolt-on, if you will, product to a home, geothermal is an infrastructure change. Now, the heating system and the cooling system is still traditional ductwork, but it requires a different a piece of equipment, entirely different piece of equipment. So you get rid of your air conditioner and you get rid of your furnace. And one of the nice things about geothermal is you don't have a noisy air conditioner on the outside mm -hmm. of the home. All of the equipment is is in your lower level or in your, in your utility closet or wherever you might have your traditional furnace now. So you completely get rid of that condensing unit on the outside. Then the next thing you have to do with geothermal is you, you put a loop field in your yard. Now that can be a horizontal loop field if you have space, but if you don't have space, um, like what I did in my house, I did vertical wells. So it's actually, it's a vertical application where the loop fields go directly straight down uh, into the earth. But it's, it's a lot easier to put geothermal in when you're designing the home and building the home. 
but can it be retrofitted in? Uh, sure it can. Um, most economically though, would be at the time that you're ready to replace your furnace or replace your air conditioner because those two pieces of equipment uh, basically become obsolete in, in a geothermal type environment. So there really is no direct rough in for geothermal. It's more something that you wanna bring into the design uh, uh, or that you wanna retrofit in, when you're ready to replace your furnace and air conditioning. On the radiant heat side, we can we can rough in, uh, particularly what we do with this is in a basement uh, slab condition. So, and and that too is something that you kind of want to put in up front, uh, especially as it relates to the basement because it's got to go in your concrete. And otherwise, you're breaking up your concrete floor, and then you're putting insulation down below it to do it. So uh, that too would be something that you'd want to design into the the in, into a new home. Um, it's a little bit more easier to put that in in a first floor deck that uh, has a basement below it. Um, but that too is a commitment to an infrastructure change in your home. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, I mean, again, going back to building it into the design is way more efficient right. than having to retrofit anything. I love the idea of like being able to orient homes as you're building them for solar and making sure that the south facing, you know, roof is there's nothing, there's no gables or like pipes or anything in the way because that tends to be what loses the most surface area for solar. Um, and I also wanted to point out specifically what you were saying with the geothermal, I thought was really cool is um, you had said that if you're going to retrofit, make sure that you wait until the end of the life of the appliances that you already have. And that's another you know common thing in sustainability is we have all of these cool ideas and new things that we want to replace with that are more efficient. But if you just get rid of something that's already working, it kind of negates the benefits of having a more efficient thing. Yeah, and sure so, yeah, I, I really like that you pointed out that you wait, wait until the end of the life cycle and then you can upgrade your system. That was, that's really interesting to hear that you guys are thinking about that too. I also wanted to ask about gray water usage. Um, what kind of experience do you guys have in that? First of all, maybe explain what gray water is for our listeners who maybe don't know and then what, what kinds of things are you seeing with that? Sure. So, so gray water, this, the concept behind gray water, gray water is that it takes um, your, your, not your black water, but truly gray water. So it looks at the shower, takes your shower water, it takes your, uh, um, your vanity water. So your, your sinks, uh, anything that doesn't contain food, but may have like, say, uh, soap, right? Soap, like a shower, again, a vanity and any other sinks that you might have in your home. And, and essentially it runs it through a filtration system and, and uses it. It's still non-potable water, but you would then use it in your place like your toilets. Um, it also has been used in some cases for irrigation. And so your, your toilet water, your black water, that still goes completely out of the house. So we're really just recycling the water that comes from the shower the bath vanities and any other sink that might not have uh, food particles going down it and again that is a that's a relative it's it's been around for a while municipalities and state plumbing codes are kind of slow to adopt it 
Okay. Um, but we did a project back in 2008. It was a philanthropic project uh, with the Wisconsin Builders Association right here in Waukesha, actually. It was called the Trend Home. And one of the things that we did in the Trend Home is we did gray water recycling uh, through those fixtures that I just described to you. And then what we did is we essentially filtrated that water and cleaned it enough. Again, it's not drinkable, of course, but cleaned it enough that we were able to use it in the toilet so that we, and the toilets are one of the, people sometimes don't understand this, toilets are one of the biggest consumption of water in the home. Really? You, you, you may think it's your washing machine, you may think it's your shower. Toilets are one of the biggest consumption uh, appliances or fixtures in a home. So being able to uh, use a recycled gray water and use that in the toilet rather than, uh, you know, fresh water, drinking water, so to speak, saves a significant amount of water. Um, but there are some things that uh, the plumbing code, and justifiably so, needs to make sure um, that there isn't any uh, mixing of that gray water with any other freshwater system. So that's right. that's our primary concern. But we are seeing gray water recycling in areas that are starved for water right now. So the Southwest, say Arizona, uh, even Southern California, New Mexico, they're starting to adopt their codes to allow that. And in, in, in there are companies now that have actually done a significant amount of innovation on gray water uh, recycling and also using UV lights as well. There's a UV light component in it. In addition to just filters, there's a UV light component to it. And so you're starting to see those in areas where water is is kind of a valuable a valuable resource. Water in general is a valuable resource. We get desensitized to it here in the Midwest because we got the Great Lakes. And right. if you're not quite aware of this yet, there are other states that want our water that are not contiguous to the Great Lakes. There are other states in the central part of our country and, and even you know down in the Southwest that would love to get our water. And water is becoming kind of the new oil. Uh, or the new, well, maybe that's not the right term, the new kind of a gold standard for really a, a, a resource that's hard to get. And so it's going to become a greater commodity in the future, and it's going to become more expensive. So not only reducing water consumption is something that we need to focus on, but we also need to understand is how can we recycle it locally rather than having it sent down to the the sewer plant to to get cleaned and then there are ways that we can do this because energy is involved transporting water requires energy yeah transporting right through the house and transporting it out in a way and down to a plant that all requires energy so the more water that we can conserve reduces energy consumption uh, you know, statewide, globally. And so sometimes we don't give consideration to the impact water delivery systems have on our environment and the energy that's required uh, to get the water to the home. And then, of course, to move the water away and clean it. If we can do more little things inside the home with gray water recovery systems, we can reduce that impact of uh, energy consumption to, to deliver and process. Wow, that's really fascinating. But you're saying that it's not it's not really in code around here yet. Well, they're they'll work. You have to go to the state actually here. Mm -hmm. Your your municipality is not going to be able to. At least this is the this is the history of it. Um, and I'm not aware of any municipality that's not going to move it to a state to have the state sign off on it and certify it. But in other parts of the country. Um, they're definitely more progressive on it because water is very valuable and it costs a tremendous amount more, almost four to five times 
more than what we pay here. So when you get to that level of cost, people are going to find ways uh, to not only reduce consumption, but how can we recycle it on site? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit, you know, a different topic on, on water though, of trying to reduce the, the miles of water driven is reverse osmosis systems. So what can you tell me about that and how does that also play in our water use in our homes? Well, the reverse osmosis system, really what that does is really minimizes or mitigates uh, people's concerns about water quality. So like whether you're on a municipal system or you're on a well system, people tend to, you know, buy more bottled water because they don't want, they don't trust the water that's coming out of the kitchen faucet, say. And, and if you soften your water, um, you know, it, you're adding salts, essentially conditioning your water. People tend to lean more towards, um, you know, bottled water or other things that we have uh, discussed in, in other podcasts, Laura, that we've done uh, related to the amount of plastic that we generate in landfills and making sure that we can recycle it. Reverse osmosis really mitigates the need to go out and get a bunch of bottled water. Um, you know, so it's very, it's filtered water, highly filtered water. Um, and it's great drinking water. So I have one of them in our house. We all use it for whether it's making coffee, whether it's boiling water for food, uh, that reverse osmosis system gets a lot of use and it really mitigates the need to go out and buy bottled water. Of course, you get your water, your own water bottle, right? One that's washable that you use, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, an aluminum or metal water, whatever it might be. And that's what we use to, to fill up our, our water drinking water in the home. And it, again, really negates the need for going out and buying bottled water. So reverse osmosis is going to give you that clean drinking water that a lot of people feel they can't get from a traditional water uh, service like municipal water or well water. Okay. And is that a system that has to be designed into the home or can that one be retrofit? Oh, it's a pretty easy retrofit. Yeah. So there's there's companies out there that do it. Um, we use Guthrie and Fry. They're they're one of the, uh, in my opinion, one of the great water specialists here in southeast Wisconsin. Um, they've put multiple in the homes that I've lived in. Um, they've been involved in putting reverse osmosis systems in all of our home in my homes, and they do the same thing as it relates for the homes that we build. So you get a water conditioning specialist like that, and they can set you up. They're easy little. Uh, uh, containers that can be little pumps that can be placed under your sink and it'll work to condition and filter your water for you pretty quickly. But the best thing to do really is to design it into your home if you're building it because then you can have that pump in that in that uh, pressure tank uh, located down in the basement. All your filters are down in the basement and then it's a direct line to wherever you want that that faucet to, to end. Okay. All right. So you had mentioned uh, a little bit ago about how there are other states, um, you know, in the Southwest that are a little bit more focused on the water consumption. Um, and I was a little bit more curious about how are other areas dealing with the home construction? Are there other topics that are more involved in other areas? And like, why, why has the Midwest been a little bit slower to adapt some of these environmental initiatives? Well, um, I think a lot of it is a function of need. And again, when you think about the water, we got the Great Lakes. There's nothing that's really a huge motivator to make a shift in how we use water. Um, the other component of it, I think there's a huge energy efficient uh, driven demographic here because of our winters, 
right? So, so that's a big component that people want to really control their utility bills. So one of the things that we've kind of talked about in, in our world here is that we're, we're more of an economic green market in the Midwest, primarily. It doesn't say that there's not people that are really driven towards sustainability. I'm not saying that at all, but there's definitely markets, especially on the West Coast and even in the Northeast, that are have a, a, a greater sustainability strategy and initiative both public and in the in the public space and in the private space than we than we do in the Midwest. And I think it's just a function of the 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 culture, the demographic that are in those areas, mm-hmm. um, how municipalities or uh, groups like uh, the Waukesha Green Team position themselves in those areas to to drive awareness about sustainability. Um, but it's it it's not to say that it's not here. It's just not as strong as it is in say uh, Seattle or Portland, uh, Northern California or Vermont, New Hampshire. Um, you're going to see a lot more uh, commitment to what I would call a darker green. Uh, initiative, but really any form of green is a great place to start. You know, whether it's very light, whether it's a, you know, <laughs> kind of a, a Christmas tree green, or it's really dark green, it's just starting at some spot is a great place to start and then continue to drive and learn more about it and how it impacts. I think there's a, there's a lot more around health right now, right? With COVID, right. Um, there's been a lot more conversation around healthier homes and what can I do to better the indoor air quality uh, in our home? So that topic has gained a tremendous amount of attention uh, over the past 12 months here. And, you know, as we build tighter and tighter homes for energy efficiency, we really have to think about the indoor environment. And we have to make sure as builders and consumers that we're thinking about how are we not only exhausting air out of the home. We always think about the bath fans and they're very important. You got moisture and then you've got a fan, uh, say at your kitchen range that uh, you're exhausting any byproducts from cooking, especially gas cooking. But think about how are you replacing that air that you're exhausting? So fresh air ventilation systems are really important. And uh, that's something that we made a commitment to uh, about seven years ago. And um, and as we continue to build tighter and tighter homes, we bring in mechanical ventilation. So uh, one of the themes that we follow is build tight and ventilate right. Sometimes people say, can you you ever build a home too tight? Good building science people will tell you, no, you can never build it too tight because you want to bring in fresh air ventilation. Because what happens now in homes that are drafty is you're relying essentially on air pockets coming in from a variety of different spots throughout your home. And what that does is it eventually diminishes your insulation uh, capabilities. It diminishes the effect that your insulation will have on keeping your home warm. So when you rely on air infiltration through your walls or through your basement or through your attic, that's a that's the wrong strategy. Um, use mechanical ventilation. That way you're filtrating the air and it's not just coming through your walls or coming through your floor and bringing any dust or pollen or any other uh, environmental things that you don't want in your home from the outside. You're not bringing that in. You're actually filtering the air and you're bringing in fresh, clean air into your house versus, again, kind of an uncontrolled source of, of ventilation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that you know, the building environment is changing as needs change. So you were saying like the water is a bigger focus in places that are water scarce. And maybe the energy is a little bit more of a focus in um, 
northern states like Wisconsin, where we have tougher winters. And now overall, because of COVID, we are focusing a lot more on the interior health and the human health of the occupants in buildings. I've seen that as well, too, in the commercial building side. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. So you, way back at the beginning of this, you mentioned net zero homes, and that piqued my interest. So what, what can you tell me about net zero homes? So net zero is really focused on first, you focus on driving down consumption. And yep. I think that's the most important thing for people to understand. You, you can always build this huge solar array on the back of your house and in your yard to, to offset your electrical bill. But the most cost-effective way and really the right way to focus on it is we want to drive down consumption first. So that starts with, you know, electrical consumption. LED bulbs, you know, are a no-brainer. That's an easy thing to drive down consumption. Energy-efficient appliances. Um, and then you start to get into conversations around natural gas. So how, if you're going to use natural gas in the house, how can you make sure that you have the most efficient appliances for that? Um, and that really starts with water heating and, and furnaces. One of the things that we're doing now is we're switching over to hybrid electric water heaters, which greatly reduce, well, one, eliminates natural gas, and two, uh, greatly reduces energy consumption in the house. Um, the energy factor is almost a five times multiple than a traditional natural gas water heater. So it's wow. a pretty big impact that that can make. And then you focus on air sealant. Air sealant is one of the most cost-effective ways to build an energy-efficient home. So start there first. A lot of people think, you know, more insulation, more insulation. No, first start with air sealing. That's your biggest thing. And then focus on the areas of the home. The basement area is, is one. The attic first is the biggest heat loss. Then basement's number two. And then a distant third, people sometimes don't understand this, a distant third really is walls and windows. It's, it's your basement and your attic that are going to make up about 70% of your heat loss in your home. So you want to focus on those areas first. And then, um, again, air sealant's a great place to start. And then make sure that you've got a reasonable insulated wall system. We like to wrap our entire exterior walls in at least one inches of insulated sheathing. Um, that really helps to, to disconnect the thermal break that you might get from the wood framing. Wood is a great conductor of, of energy. We want to stop energy from going through the wood. So we wrap just like a fleece that you pull over uh, your shirt and you go out. That's, think of this as a fleece. It's, it's that whole house uh, wrap around insulated warm comfort blanket that you get in addition to the insulation in your wall. But really start with consumption. Then once you model that, you've got your consumption down, then you design a reasonable solar array to essentially offset your consumption. You don't want to overproduce because overproducing, it's an additional investment for you. And some municipal or some utility companies can actually give you a slight reduction in what they pay you. Uh, we call that a penalty uh, for what you produce. So it's really getting the right combination of ingredients, so to speak, and getting a good energy modeler is where you want to start to determine that. You're, until we get rid of natural gas in its entirety, and we're moving towards the electrification of our country, but until we get rid of natural gas entirety, it's really hard to offset natural gas. So we focus on the electrical side and we offset the electric and we reduce as much as we can, we reduce as much as we can that natural gas. So when we build net zero electric homes, 
we we focus on an electric or an induction oven. We don't do a gas oven. We do an induction or an electric oven. And the same thing with a dryer. We'll do an electric dryer. And then we model that consumption, including those items in the home, and build a solar array to offset that consumption. Some people think, well, no, natural gas is, is going to be more affordable for my appliances than electric. Yes, and uh, if you don't have a solar array, Yes, it'll be more, it'll lower utilities. But with a solar array, you can offset that and you can reduce your consumption, ultimate, your net consumption in the home. So energy modeling is a great place to start for that, Laura. And, um, but, you know, net zero homes, uh, I prefer that the consumer drives it or the builder drives it, but there is places like California that are pushing for legislation. They already have it in place that require uh, uh, at least I believe it's a three kilowatt solar system, but that's on every, on every new home built, that doesn't necessarily offset consumption. It supports mm -hmm. it. It supports it, but it doesn't, in my opinion, offset it. So I prefer to lead with the rest of the industry in developing uh, and researching and innovating in products that we can find ways to get the best value for the consumer um, versus legislation pushing towards it. But at some point, whether it's the energy code or whether it's legislation, uh, it will be here um, for us and any new homes or retrofitted homes have to meet a requirement like that. But again, it's at the end of the day, it's also just it is good building practice. Right. Yeah, I love the holistic approach of start with reduce what you can to actually save that money. And then you only offset what you really need to. You don't need to offset the whole energy bill when it doesn't make sense. Yep. That, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, this has been really interesting and I've learned a lot. And I think as we wrap up here, I want to ask you, what are the two to three most important things that current homeowners can do to make their homes more energy efficient? That's a that's a great question, um, Laura. Again, there's a lot of great resources for this, by the way. Um, you can go to the Focus on Energy website. You can learn about if you decide at some point that you're going to do an addition or you're going to remodel your home and you might want to do an energy uh, retrofit in your home. There's great resources, and actually you can get some rebates and credits from the state uh, utility consortium, which is Focus on Energy. But if you want to do this on your own, there are some simple things that one can start with. And again, I'll just keep going back to air sealing and how important that is. But the first thing that I think um, most people can start with, again, is air sealant. But I'm going to go down into this basement box cell, the area above the foundation that's between the top of your foundation and the bottom section of your first floor deck. If you go down in your basement and you look up there, in most cases, you're going to see uh, fiberglass bat insulation. And this is the time of year. So we're in kind of the spring season here where people go down into their basement and they could start to smell the musty smell in the basement. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we got to fire up the dehumidifier. You know, it's spring. Well, that musty smell you're smelling is the air that's been coming through your home during the winter time, the cold air that's coming in and hits your warm air in your basement condenses on the backside of your insulation. And so if you pull insulation off of some of those areas where you might have a plumbing pipe going out or an electrical wire going out, you might even see some mold and mildew back there. You're going to see a mm -hmm. dirty uh, insulation behind there because insulation down there basically is a filter. It's not, it doesn't air seal. So what we think is your biggest impact that can pay back for you in less than three years in most cases is to remove that bat of insulation and have a professional come out and do closed cell foam in each one of those cavities. That 
not only gives you the insulation, but it gives you the air sealant. You're not going to get air sealing with a bat of insulation. Insul a bat of insulation is effectively a filter. Unless you seal it on all six sides, the front, the back, the sides, the top and the bottom, all six sides, it is a filter. And mm -hmm. once it filters dirt air and that air gets dirty, it reduces the effectiveness of that insulation. So that's the first, foremost, the biggest thing you can do is replace those bats of insulation and, and do that closed cell foam. 30% of your energy loss comes right there. The next place is really attic where 40% of your energy loss comes. Now, it's not just adding insulation in your attic. I'm going to go back to air sealing. So if you have any, well, you would, electrical fixtures in your ceiling that are that share that attic space, any other types of penetrations into that attic that you can seal, whether it's caulking or even just a, a, a can of, of, of closed cell foam that you can get at Home Depot or Lowe's, uh, you can do that yourself. And if you can seal up those areas and reduce the amount of air infiltration that goes into your attic, that's a great start. Then, then once you do that, then you can apply some additional insulation up there or remove the insulation that you might have up there if it's dirty. Uh, if it's an older house, chances are it's pretty dirty. And remember, again, uh, dirty insulation is, uh, the R value of that is greatly reduced. So air seal that area as best you can and then um, you know add some more insulation into that. Another thing I would encourage people to do is, the, uh, especially in older homes, is replace older inefficient or obsolete, obsolete equipment sooner than later. Some, you may have some uh, what we call atmospherically vented equipment. So that would be a little chimney that comes out uh, for your furnace and for your water heater. Um, there's Once you start air sealing your home, those types of appliances can create a backdraft of carbon monoxide. In a very drafty home, in a very drafty home, it's okay because your home is constantly exchanging <laughs> air. You don't control that, but it helps to mitigate uh, any type of carbon monoxide concern. When you start to tighten up your home, those atmospherically vented appliances, again, the furnace and the water heater, uh, could be a, a concern, a health concern. So we encourage, and you can, again, go on the Focus on Energy website. They provide rebates and support to help you replace that with more energy efficient equipment, especially if it's more than 20 years old. Um, you can get some great support on that, but get a higher, higher efficiency furnace, high energy efficiency furnace, even an air conditioner. Um, you'll reduce your utility bills and then even look at getting a power vented water heater or even some of these newer water heaters, these electric hybrid water heaters, which are also great rebates for, especially if you do an energy upgrade up uh, retrofit in your home, you can get some support from this focus on energy and helping to mitigate some of the costs, but you're going to have a much more comfortable home, a safer home, and you're going to lower your utility bills. And resale wise, a home's going to sell better with newer equipment than with older equipment. That makes a lot of good sense. Thanks for those actionable tips there. Um, so I think lastly, do you want to just shout out your podcast real quick? Yeah. So thank you, Laura, for that. Um, so at Tim O'Brien Homes, we started a podcast uh, in last September and we do we release two podcasts uh, every month and, and the program is called uh, Building Sustainably. And we focus on uh, topics just like what Laura, what we, we talked about here on how to build a sustainable environment in your home. We talk about also, too, 
the sustainability of our building industry. We talk about sustainability of uh, uh, our, the labor force that we work. We work with high schools uh, across the metro Milwaukee area and also in Madison to help promote trades courses and give kids an opportunity to work side by side with trades in the field to see if this is something of interest to them that they want to grow into uh, in, the, in as a career and potentially as a future uh, small business owner. So um, we really focus on providing resources and information that are along the lines of building a sustainable uh, home, a sustainable uh, business, sustainable operation, and a sustainable career. And so that's pretty much uh, kind of what our podcast is. We've had some great uh, speakers from all around the country. And then we've also to provide some more uh, information just about what's happening in the world of home building today. So we really appreciate the opportunity for you guys to come out and, and, and check on that podcast as well. Yeah, I'll definitely share a link to that podcast and any of the resources that Tim has mentioned on this episode. There's a lot to go through. So we want to make sure that everybody has what they need to make their home a little bit more energy efficient. Uh, so thank you, Tim, for joining me today. Um, I hope you have a great Western week. Hey, Laura, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for doing what you guys are doing at the Waukesha Green Team. Make sure to check out Greencast on Facebook, where we post the most up-to-date information, release episodes, provide a lot more resources about things you heard on the show, and have conversations about episodes and sustainability in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and beyond. Also, if you're interested in the Waukesha County Green Team, please check out our website and Facebook page and come to one of our board meetings. They're always open to the public. Greencast is produced through the Waukesha County Green Team by Alec Lapoitovin and Laura Laux, with help from Stacey Balsley. Our theme music is by Dan Krill and Emma Kopel. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sustainability starts with all of us.